Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by Q-Tech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Emma. And I'm Max. And we are your hosts for Q-Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not-so-typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q-Talks, we are talking to Professor Anthony Finkelstein, former Chief Scientific Advisor for National Security to the UK Government and current President of City, the University of London. Hello, Anthony. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. To start things off, please, could you give us an overview of your incredible career? And please, can you dig into what your job as Chief Scientific Advisor for National Security involved? Sure. So my name is Anthony Finkelstein. Um, I'm currently the president of City University of London. So because City is a constituent institution of the University of London, that means I'm in effect the vice chancellor at City. Um, started my career at Imperial College in computing and spent the longest part of my career in computer science at UCL, headed UCL computer science, went on uh, to be Dean of Engineering with some excursions to do a couple of tech startups, which might become relevant a little later in our discussion. So prior to being president, I was for six years the government's chief scientific advisor for national security. It used to be I'd have to explain what a chief scientific advisor is and does, and now with Patrick and Chris forever on our televisions, there's not so much need for me to do that. I've worked quite a lot, actually, with both Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty. They're both amazing people, and the UK is really fortunate uh, to have them. I can say a bit about what we did together. So what does a chief scientific advisor for national security do? Well, that means that I was responsible for science, research and innovation across the UK's national security community. I was the voice of science, technology and to a certain extent the future in strategic decision making in national security. It means I worked with other bits of HM government on interdisciplinary problems, some of which uh, required my engineering and computer science background. And then I supported the UK national security missions, which are uh, set down in government policy. They include areas such as counterterrorism, counterproliferation, and what's called strategic advantage, which is about understanding the intent and capabilities of other states towards the UK and her allies. To put it in a, in a nutshell, it's about science and technology in relation to protecting the citizens of the UK and its allies from harm, and it's about protecting our system of laws and our democracy, which is the function of national security. So that's my background in sum. 
Thank you, Anthony. This is incredible. You've truly had a remarkable career and professional trajectory. But touching a little bit more in the role as chief scientific advisor, what did you achieve in government that you are most proud of? I think probably, I mean, there's a lot of different things that I'm proud of. I think what I'm most proud of is the policy impact that I had. So I think I'm very proud of being a part of a group of people working in government who brought science and technology into the centre of the national security debate and to national security policy. To a large extent, I think it had been a bit at the periphery. And I think I was part of a movement to bring it to the fore. So I'm very proud of the work we also did to bring innovation from outside the national security into the national security community. So I think I was part of a broader recognition that um, the national security community could no longer innovate behind high barbed wire fences and was going to have to engage with the broader science and innovation community. And I think I helped a little bit on that, again, with loads of really talented individuals. And then I'm really proud of of contributions that I made again with others to address some of the operating challenges for national security. So to confront the problems about how one maintains secret and secure work in the context of an ever more sensed and data rich environment. So those are are things that I think I'm proud of. And there are all sorts of other bits and pieces that I might say, but those are the big ones. Before we dig a bit deeper into some of the national security stuff, if I may quickly switch track a little bit first, could we hear a bit more about your childhood, please, and how you got into engineering and national security and then kind of connected to that? I'm sure a lot of the listeners will have heard of the fascinating life led by your grandfather, Alfred Wiener. And as far as I can work out, you must have only been five or six when he passed away. But did he have an influence on you on any of this? Firstly, my childhood, you know, I was born and brought up in northwest London, a Jewish childhood in a very close family. My father, a university professor, my mother, a teacher, a teacher and information scientist. Uh, Both my parents had had very difficult wartime experiences My father had been exiled to Siberia, strictly Kazakhstan, and been imprisoned there by the Russians. My mother was a concentration camp survivor. So that's some important part of my background. It's an important part of my background that I'm a child of refugees. It says something about me and my identity. And That also clearly influenced my brother and sister. My brother is a well-known political journalist, Daniel Lord Finkelstein, and my sister, a senior civil servant, she's a permanent secretary. So we were all very influenced by that and perhaps a sort of drive to public service, which that represents perhaps a sense of wanting to belong 
which is you know very important for people who come from a refugee background. My grandfather Alfred Weiner, my mother's father, was himself a you know a political activist, had been a prominent opponent of Nazism and a very early person to spot the the threat of anti-Semitism in Germany. He decided to set up something called the Wiener Library, eventually called the Wiener Library, which was about collecting the documents you know, related to Nazism to show racism and anti-Semitism in its own words and Nazism in its own words and to expose that. And it became a major archive, eventually finding its home now here in London on Russell Square. And it's amazing history archive, which people can look up on the web. So, you know, personally, as you observe, he he died before, you know, I have a memory of him, but it's uh, the memory of a child. But of course, he was a big part of my upbringing in the sense that his presence and his views and his politics definitely deeply influenced me and my family and so on. I worked in the library when I was, that was my summer job when I was at school and later when I was a student, I would work in the library, shifting books around and helping readers with queries and uh, so on. It's a bit of an extraordinary thing to do. So yes, the library was a big part of my childhood too. How come you chose to pursue a career in engineering and technology? Did you kind of start with that aim of wanting to get involved in public service and make an impact and then thought tech is the best way of doing it? Oh, no. I mean, firstly, my dad was an engineer and a professor of engineering and a pretty distinguished engineer at that fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering and so on. It wasn't wholly unexpected. And actually, my sister studied engineering as well. Actually, my mother was a chemist. So, you know, it was a sort of, you know, scientific and technical techie household. And I was a typical geeky child. You know, I, I took things apart and um, built small bits of electronics. And I mean, that was relatively later, of course, given my age. You know, the moment computers came around, I, you know, started to program and, and what have you. So that was always part of my a childhood, a fascination with tech. And I was completely captivated by computing and of course I'm the sort of age you know all tech people my age sort of became a little bit like that the the Sinclair Spectrum and the BBC and the you know Atom Acorn and you know the first calculators and all of that that was that was my childhood. I mean if we can speak a little bit about national security now and talk about some of the impact you've had there I mean the chief of MI6 Richard Moore gave that speech recently in which he said that there were the big four set of threats, China, Russia, Iran, and international terrorism. What do you think the biggest threats to Britain's national security are right now? And then, I guess, on top of that, what do you think they are likely to be in 10, 20 years' time? Actually, I mean, it's very interesting because I think the threat posed by states that do not share our values and amongst that set of states, states who who would without compunction engage in hostile action against the UK and its allies. These remain a major problem and you might say that's one which has 
not been getting better and in some respects has been getting worse. If you asked me, uh, standing back, what would I say are the great, the big threats to the UK national security, you might actually look at some of the global challenges that we face, such as climate change and migration and ungoverned states and organised crime, other vehicles for achieving dominance over states through mechanisms like debt and the use of science and technology to embed adverse values. You might say that some of those are the most potent threats to the UK's national security. And what's the, what's the feeling in the kind of high levels of government about that? Do, do people talk about climate change as a major security threat? They absolutely do. So I think this is not a unique insight on my part. So there is um, the so-called integrated review of defence, security and foreign policy. And I strongly commend that to people listening. It's actually a very interesting and well-written document, the product of a very talented policy team in government. And that sets out some of these threats quite clearly, I think. And considering now these big threats, what are the main ways in which technology can help us to address these national security problems? We need to look at three different dimensions. The first is technology, science and technology as a domain of geopolitics. So hitherto, and I think prior to the... Um, integrated review making this apparent. Hitherto, to the extent that we connected science and technology with geopolitics, it was mostly connected with dual-use technologies and areas such as that, so technologies that could be, you know, weaponry and so on. Now I think we understand that the scientific and technological capability of states lies at the heart of both the hard and soft power that they can assert. So that's the first, the first element, science at the heart of geopolitics. The second is that traditional models of national security are increasingly challenged by a world in which data and sensing and a range of things are available. And this is not just to the obvious high-capability states that you mentioned earlier in discussion, but much more broadly. And the third thing is that national security, with the UK's interests and the interests of its allies in mind, needs to be the most capable users of that technology in order to remain one of the most capable national security organisations for government. Considering now something different, which also has come across because of tech, is this issue of uh, spread of misinformation and disinformation on social media. How much of a problem do you think that is? And will this problem change in a decade's time? And how can we solve this? Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, the first thing I should say is I'm not an expert on this area. And I commend to you the work done by the Computational Propaganda Unit out of Oxford, part of the Oxford Internet 
Institute. I'm sorry for mentioning Oxford and the Cambridge thing, but it is great work. So I, I commend that to anybody who's interested in following it up. Clearly, mis and disinformation is a major problem. And it's a problem that it appears that many of the major tech platform providers see it as in their commercial interests not to take the steps I believe are necessary to combat. I think one may even say are willfully neglectful of the issue. I'm broadly, however, a a bit of an optimist. I'm I'm by nature a techno-optimist rather than a techno-pessimist. And so I do think that there is the prospect of improved technological tools for spotting miss and dis. And I think also that people are becoming better educated and understanding better the operating principles of the platforms on which they're operating. And then I think there are some more some further off technological developments which might quite radically change the data scene that I think might have an effect on this. But at the moment, there's no question it's a problem. Interestingly enough, I'm sort of less worried about the mature democracies and more worried about the effects on less mature democracies. That being said, the capital riots are not a happy story for us to tell. Why is that? Please can you dig a bit deeper into that. Yes, because I think that reflects on the motivations of the states, the maturity of the political discourse, and the robustness of the democratic systems. And the fact that in uh, some of these areas, these technologies have come late, uh, people are on a learning curve. You know, I think we are more sophisticated as the result of having had relatively early penetration of our information markets by these technologies. Thank you. Um, now, still on the topic of technology, um, what excites you most about what is happening in tech right now? Wow, I mean, there's a lot of really exciting things. What excites me most? Nearer in the developments in behavioral analytics and the combination of behavioral science and data science, I think it's really interesting. Privacy enhancing technologies, novel crypt and privacy enhancing technologies, that's super interesting. You wanted my single bet, that would be it low-cost space and the commoditization of space, digital twins and what's happening in that space. I'm not a cryptocurrency fan, but I still think some of the distributed ledger and smart contract stuff is really interesting. Not not particularly for currencies, but in other interesting multi-party applications. Uh, Smart materials, bioengineering, really interesting. Micro-robotics, got to be really interesting. And um, 
neuroscience, new frontiers in neuroscience, particularly the coming together of AI and neuroscience, and the coming together of behavioral sciences and neurosciences. So that's my bets. You'll see there's some, there's some omissions in that as well. That's my list. Yeah, that's an amazing list. I think you've chosen one, actually, the most exciting topics right now in tech. Um, you mentioned about the commoditization of space. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It used to be that if you wanted to access space, you wanted satellite capability, you'd have to pay hundreds of millions to do that, depending a little bit on the sophistication of what you wanted or the price pointers plummeted by orders of magnitude. And new low Earth orbit constellations and commodity satellite launching has changed the game. So you want satellite imaging, you want, you know, tracking, you want uh, for, you know, Internet of Things and other other things, you want other forms of space capability that's within your easy reach and ever easier. That's quite a big deal. Are there certain technological developments at the moment that really frighten you as well as excite you? Probably yes. I'll tell you the one that, that doesn't, and I'll tell you the one that does. So the one that doesn't, but I know that other people are, is I'm not worried about the singularity and hyper-intelligent AI. That doesn't bug me particularly. What does bug me is the bio risk. So engineered and synthetic bio and the ability to, to create novel pathogens and to be able to potentially do things like create genetically targeted bioweapons and so on, that's quite frightening. I don't think it's an immediate threat. Others disagree with me, actually. But I think it's a medium-term threat. So that, that's probably the tech development that, that worries me most. And, of course, the combination of that with these, like most of these things, as these techs don't stand alone, it's the combination with other tech. But that's a worry. And maybe the other worry I've got is a long-standing one, but just because it's been a long-standing one doesn't mean it's not a, a serious threat, which is nuclear proliferation. You know, proliferative threats remain and nasty, nasty people are still about in the world. And some of them are in charge of states. Ed, you mentioned that you're not particularly worried about superintelligence. Don't you consider this a potential existential danger as well? I know that people do but I consider it to be extraordinarily remote and mitigatable. In sum, on my worry list, it's not on my immediate list. So here we are with much more immediate and pressing threats which require our attention. And many of you will have seen the uh, popular meme. I don't know how to describe it. There's a sort of, on one side of the picture, there's um, a cat sort of smiling. And on the other side of the picture, there's a bunch of people sort of pointing. Now people will know the meme. And I've seen a very nice version of it. So on one side, with all the people sort of shouting and pointing. It says, you know, people worried about the existential threat of AI. 
And on the other side, it's got, you know, my neural network and the, the cat is surrounded by a box which says dog. You know, that's roughly where I am on the on the topic. Let's worry about the stuff we need to worry about. For many people, there's still hunger, nasty people with Kalashnikovs shooting them and their kids, disease, poverty, and climate change threatening their work, their environment. If I was in that situation, I think that was pretty existential. Can we just get your take as well on whether you think that artificial general intelligence is something that's going to be achieved in the next couple of decades, or is that something you think is just impossible? Can we get your stance on on that, please? Yeah, yeah, I'm a software engineer by background, and that doesn't make me well qualified to pronounce on that. But no is the answer. And this is not an objection fundamentally based on... Uh, epistemic or philosophical considerations about consciousness and whatever, but it's more anchored on a sense of what is achievable within the constraints of the very fragile technologies we currently have available. I also am a person who thinks we need a little bit of, you know, I'll lay it out there. I think we need a little bit of balance between a discussion of the risks of AI and benefits found myself a little bit frustrated that, you know, that for every one meeting I'm invited to, to look about how AI might be applied in the important areas of health and social welfare and defense and security. I'm invited to 10 involving people who don't know much about technology, debating the philosophical niceties and their opinions about bias in AI and what the consequences are. So I think we we may need some corrective to some of that discussion. Thank you. And further on on the topic of technology, can we talk a little about uh, quantum computing? How do you think quantum computing will change society? Quantum computing is an important technology. And so, I mean, firstly, let's, let's say we've got three different technologies in this space. Quantum computing, quantum communication, and quantum sensing. Of these, the nearest in is quantum sensing. And I think this may have a quite fundamental effect in a whole range of areas, providing a whole range of novel sensing capabilities that will have application in exploration, discovery, in defense and security, in health and a whole range of areas beyond that. I think that's really important. Quantum communications opens the possibility of, under certain circumstances, secure communication. Of course, secure communication is a systems property, not a property of a particular technology. So it's constrained by the system within which it's embedded. And now quantum computation. I think it's important to understand that we have actually a limited range of algorithms that we now know work on quantum computers or achieve differentially advantageous properties on quantum computers. Thus, the range of tasks that can be performed is limited. I suspect that quantum computing is going to be highly disruptive in some very important areas. One is materials discovery. The second is drug design. 
and then basically any areas that require quantum simulation. So if you need to do quantum simulation, fairly obviously a quantum machine is a good thing to do it on. And that means if you need to, to understand in exquisite detail the behavior of complex physical systems, this will be a valuable technology for that purpose. Now, there's a lot of discussion. There's an edge case. I think you'd probably expect me to re make reference to it. That has to do with the cryptographic implications of quantum computing. And certain types of cryptographic structure are vulnerable to quantum computers, potentially. That being said, there are already quite mature proposals. Firstly, this is very symmetric rather than symmetric. And secondly, there are already some quite mature proposals for quantum-resistant crypt. So I'm not convinced it's going to be a disruptor in that area, albeit there's going to have to be some work done, serious work done. That's fascinating. Thank you. I mean, before we get on to the last couple of couple of questions, there was one other thing I'd quite like to ask you about your time in government. And that's that when Emma and I first came across you, it was partly through your blogs, but also partly through a tweet by Dominic Cummings, where he said, I think he spent more time talking to and working with you than any other minister other than the kind of chancellor and PM. I mean, what was it like working with someone who is so kind of famously interested in technology and the potential it has to improve politics? I mean, were there many people like him in government? And what was it like working with someone like him? <laughs> there were not many people like Dominic Cummings in government. No. Look, I can only speak as I find. And honestly, he was fantastic to work with. He was very motivated by things that were very important to me. He was motivated by doing a better job in government. He was motivated by the potential for science and technology. And he was very concerned with the UK's defence and security. And he listens extremely well and asks very good questions. That's what I can say. They offer no nor would I dream of doing so. I offer no political opinion whatsoever on this. It was great to work with the 10 Downing Street team on those problems. Thank you. So generally, it is often argued that there is a significant lack of technical understanding in the public sector because data scientists and engineers are often pulled into the private sector by the prospect of higher wages and more innovation. Do you think that this assessment is accurate? And if so, how do we address this problem? I mean, the assessment is accurate. So there is a clear need for more scientists, technologists, engineers and computer scientists and data scientists in government. There is a crying need. And I have to tell you, and I have to tell I have to tell Cambridge students, there are fantastic, fabulous careers to be had in government, in science, technology, engineering, data, and computing. Absolutely amazing careers. Exciting, meaningful, impactful jobs. Actually, quite well paid, with the benefits of a good pension and high job security you get to work on the most important problems, really close to the decision-making. These are fabulous jobs. And yes, you know, there's all sorts of mess. There, you know, the challenges of politics, 
the challenges of changing big systems and legacy architecture and everything like that. But that's what's really exciting about it. That's what, what makes it great. For some of your listeners, absolutely go for the science and technology fast stream. Great jobs on direct entry, which actually sometimes pay more than the fast stream. And there are fantastic opportunities. And it's not like it's a forever career decision either. You can move into government and out of government and into government, and there'll be greater porosity. So I strongly recommend that. And even for me, who came in a sort of peculiar position in later, it, later on in my career, I was just still overwhelmed by the opportunities I had to do really important and interesting and cool stuff and make a difference. I guess is the last question, which Emma and I are keen on asking all the guests we interview. If you could have a conversation with anyone dead or alive, who would you choose? Gosh, it's a really good question. Who would I choose? This is a fantastic opportunity you're giving me. And it would seem to me that I wouldn't want to use it for somebody who, important or significant though they were, had already left much of their their legacy clear. I'm quite drawn to the idea of a biblical figure. I'd be quite drawn to Isaiah or somebody like that. You know, and who wouldn't say that they wouldn't mind talking to their mum again? Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I think that's all we've got time for. We really, really appreciate your time, Anthony, and that was a fascinating conversation. I think we managed to cover more or less every technology that's ever been built and designed in that conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you. You asked great questions. Thanks very much to Anthony for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To find out more about QTech, spelled C-U-T-E-C, or to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website at qtech.io and follow our Twitter at qtech.